So there was the vulgar language, the common language of the streets, that was a kind of a lowbrow Latin, and that's the stuff that eventually evolves into the modern European languages, Romance languages anyway. Um, that's not the language of the liturgy. Neither is the liturgical language the language of Cicero, which is this extremely ornate, very florid kind of Latin written by classical pagan authors. Uh, the Latin of the church is somewhere in the middle of those. It was the, the kind of the administrative, governmental, and r religious Latin as it was used in, in pagan Rome. That's what was adopted for the church's liturgy. Um, so there was some variation in the Latin, and you know, people say, well, Latin's more precise, it's not ambiguous. Well, any language that's sophisticated is going to have room for ambiguity. I'm sorry, that's just a fact. Um, now, in, in fact, good poets, right, will deliberately use ambiguity uh, to bring out some poetic point. Um, and and uh, many Latin words, um, like, the, like the word ratio, which means reason, um, are very, very polyvalent in their meaning, and exactly how you're going to translate it in English is really going to change depending on the context. But the fact remains that although it, it does have some historical development within the sort of general footprint of the Latin language, and it does have um, uh, some room for ambiguity, as any sophisticated language is going to have, it has a much higher uh, threshold of precision than modern spoken languages do. And it does have the advantage of being a dead language. Now, that's not an insult to Latin. You know, saying it's dead is not, is not um, a term of derision for a language. In calling it dead, we mean that it's no longer subject to development. Now, the only development that's happened in Latin in recent years has been in ecclesiastical contexts when, for instance, they dedicate a, a helicopter landing pad in the Vatican and they have to come up with a name for helicopter, which they did uh, uh, for, the, uh, for the landing pad, so uh, for, for the, to write on the dedication of the landing pad, and similar things like that. There, there needs to be sometimes this adaptation, but oftentimes they'll just do some sort of circumlocution based upon uh, pre-existing Latin words. They don't come up with a, a, a totally new word. Word. Um, for instance, the word for car is curus, which you get you would use for a, a um, uh, you know like, like the kind of cart that was hauled behind a horse, right? So uh, when when you, if you look into these ritual blessings of of cars, it'll it'll use that particular word, which is the same word that's used for the guy who's who's the uh, eunuch of Candace uh, riding along in his chariot, huh? So if you want to translate it literally, you can say that when father comes to your house, to bless your new Volkswagen, he's blessing your chariot. But it's just an application of that of that word. So there's, there's not much, aside from that sort of minuscule development of Latin, it's not varying today. You don't have people writing exciting things in Latin that are pushing the vocabulary and things like that, which are moving it along so that it becomes a developing language. If you did introduce, you know, if we wanted to, you know, invent some Catholic empire where all the Catholics of the world can gather on some island or something and be authentic traditional Catholics and not speak these barbaric modern languages and just stick to Latin, well, ironically, what we would end up doing is, is changing the language over time and teenagers and introduce all kinds of vulgarity into it and so forth. But uh, so it has an advantage of being a dead 
language, right? That is an advantage, which means that it has fixed meanings and so forth, which means that it, the, the, the meanings of the words are canonized, right? They're, they're fixed. Uh, and, and that is a, something that's part and parcel of the very notion of tradition in religion. When something's canonized, that in part means it's put in a list, but it also means it's sort of fixed and unalterable, huh? So this is one of the advantages of the Latin tongue. Um, now, Pope John the Twenty Third um, wrote a, a, an encyclical letter called Veterum Sapientia, uh, which he uh, used to promote Latin studies. Now, a lot of people don't know that John the Twenty Third, who in a lot of ways is a very modern pope, uh, loved Latin and promoted Latin. Didn't want the liturgy to be changed from Latin promoted seminary studies to be done exclusively in Latin, at least in the ecclesiastical sciences, um, and wanted also um, to, to um, keep this very high standard of Latin. He himself, I think it was once a week, would sit in the Vatican gardens with his official Latinist. Every pope has an official Latinist. This is the guy who cleans up the Latin of his papal encyclicals. Um, and he would, they would converse in Latin in the Vatican Garden. So John the Twenty Third was a bit of a Latin geek, uh, and certainly was very d dedicated. Even though he came, by the way, from a fairly low class family, they were they were fruit merchants, I think. Um, and he, but he was well educated, and he loved the Latin tongue. He wrote this piece called Veterum Sapientia, and I'm going to. Um, I'm going to read you a quote from Veteran Sapientia that is found in a paper that was published by the International Federation um, Una Voce. It's their position, paper number seven. All right, here it is. In order that the Church may embrace all nations and that it may last until the end of time, it requires a language that is universal immutable and non-vernacular. Universal, spread out, right, all over the place. Like the Catholic Church herself. Catholic is the Greek word which means, comes from the Greek word which means the same thing as uh, universal, uh, which is a Latin or origin word. Immutable, that is to say non-changeable, and non-vernacular, that is to say not the common language of the people. He also says this, of its very nature, Latin is most suitable for promoting every culture among diverse peoples, for it gives no rise to jealousies, it does not favor any one group, but presents itself with equal impartiality, gracious and friendly to all. Now, of course, he wrote this originally in the Latin tongue in Veterum Sapientia. Um, and by the way, there what there we, we tend to think of these Latin fathers of the church. We say, well, um, there I'm, I'm minded of this because of a footnote I just glanced at. We we tend to think of these Latin fathers of the church as well speaking Latin because they were after all Romans like Saint Augustine. Well, it's more complicated than that. Saint Augustine spoke Latin. Saint Augustine wrote in Latin. Saint Augustine was a Latin rhetor. He was a rhetorician. But where did St. Augustine live? He lived in North Africa. You ever heard of the Punic Wars? This is, when, this is when the Romans originally conquered those peoples. Well, guess what? In some of his works, St. Augustine talks about the needs to have, the need of having clergy who spoke Punic. Why? Because in places that weren't in the cities in, in the North Africa of St. Augustine, there were still people who spoke Punic which was the ancient tongue that was native to that area. They weren't native Latin speakers. They spoke Punic. 
These are the Phoenicians, huh? The ancient Phoenician. Well, that was the colony of the ancient Phoenicians who originally from what's now Lebanon. Uh, but uh, these people people spoke the Punic language. And St. Augustine, he never said, oh, let's put the Mass in Punic. <laughs> uh, he said, no, we need catechesis in Punic. We need preaching in Punic. But they never advanced an idea of uh, liturgy in Punic. Again, you're listening to Reconquest on the Crusade Premium Channel, and we're talking about in this episode number 290, why should Latin be the liturgical language of Western Christendom? So we talk about the universality of the language, and uh, this again is uh, something that John XXIII argued for in Veterum Sapientia. Um, the authors of the Univoce position paper that I've been leaning on here show something very interesting in modern times. They're looking at Europe as she exists now. And this paper was, I think, written in 2012, but nothing's changed. In fact, it's only advanced. What do we get when we see, um, we see Europe today? Large migrations, large immigrant populations in Europe that do not come into Europe speaking the native European languages. They're not speaking the, the, the spoken languages of the countries that they now live in. Some They come in speaking Arabic or Farsi or, or some Indian language, uh, Hindi or, or, or something. They come in speaking a variety of different languages, some of them speaking African languages. And they don't uh, right away learn the language of their new home. Uh, so this kind of looks like Europe did at one time when you had all these weird uh, local languages. When somebody traveled from one place to another, he'd come across a language that he, that he was not familiar with or perhaps a dialect that he couldn't completely understand. But when you went to church, everybody knew the Latin. And when you actually were academically advanced and you went to study in a place, you would learn the Latin language. You knew the Latin language for studies. So, you know, you have an Italian of German ancestry, like St. Thomas Aquinas, teaching at the University of Paris. Frankly, I don't know how good St. Thomas's French was. He lectured in Latin, though. And his teacher was a German, St. Albert the Great. Uh, this, is, this is one of the things that Latin could do. When you have a universal language, it would allow that, that kind of thing. Um, if there were one universal language in the Latin church, as there was in the case of Christendom prior to the ill-advised liturgical alterations of the 60s and 70s, these people, these modern migrants, would feel at home wherever they ended up. Now, there's an interesting um, uh, anecdote. I have a few anecdotes. Uh, one, I, I went to go look it up where I could find it, and I'm, I know it's in a book by Michael Davis. He, he Michael Davis, uh, he actually uh, narrates this account. There was an African bishop at Vatican II when they were when they were debating the changes in the liturgy. They were debating the document Sacrosanctum Concilium, uh, and they said they were talking about the vernacular, and he said, "Oh, please don't." Don't change the liturgy to the vernacular. In my diocese, there are over 200 languages. These are tribal languages. You travel a few miles from one village to another, to another, to another, to another, and nobody understands each other. These are very local languages. He said, we have this tremendous advantage that everybody who's Catholic has a common language in Latin. And besides that, we're poor. 
we can't afford an army of translators to give us 200 missiles in all these different vernaculars and then print the things for these people who, who are living in, you know, literal third world conditions, right? So the advantage, the, the tremendous support network that comes from just the printers and so forth and the publishers who can come up with Latin missiles that are affordable rather than having to co concoct all these vernaculars. Not only that, of course, add to that this, the modern languages not being immutable, they change. And because they change, every once in a while, you're going to need to update that translation. Now, the irony here is that the Latin rite is still lit officially liturgically Latin. 